thank you for being here in worship today, and, and if you're watching us online, thank you for joining us um, as well. As a child of the 80s, uh, one of the things I remember um, is that a favorite pastime of kids and of teenagers, especially teenagers, uh, was to go to video arcades. This was before Xboxes and Playstations, and although there were home gaming systems, they were fairly primitive. Atari and Pong was about all that that existed. And so teenagers would go and they would play Centipede or they would play Pac-Man or Missile Command or Galaga. And they would spend a lot of time and a lot of quarters um, entertaining themselves with these video games. And so if you were around back then, you remember one of the most depressing sounds that you can hear was this computer-generated sad little tune that would play when the words game over would appear on the screen. Now, it was especially depressing if that was your last quarter that you had just spent on that game, and it was really, really sad if you had not played that last game very well. That meant that you were leaving the video arcade on a low note. So here's why I take all you Gen Xers on this trip down memory lane, uh, back to your time playing video games. Today, we are looking at a passage where for one individual, it is game over, and his life that began with so much promise ends on an incredibly sad note. Uh, If you've got a Bible with you, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 31. Uh, This is found in your Old Testament. 1 Samuel comes right after the little book of Ruth, which comes right after Judges. Originally, uh, Samuel was one book that was not a first and a second Samuel, but when the writers of the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, uh, when they did that translation about 250 years before Christ, they divided Samuel into two books, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. 1 uh, 1 Samuel 31 ends the book of 1 Samuel, and those writers picked a perfect place to end the book as we will see a main character in this book whose life ends very sadly. Uh, Just to bring you up to speed, if you're new today, we are in a series called Sins and Stones, uh, looking at the life of King David. King David was the second king over Israel who lived about a thousand years before Christ, about 3,000 years ago. The first king over Israel was a man named Saul. Saul started his reign very strongly, pursuing the Lord, doing what was right. But over time, Saul's heart drifted away from the Lord to the point that God eventually rejected Saul as king over Israel. Not only rejecting Saul, but rejecting Saul's family line as the reigning monarchy over Israel. Uh, God sent a prophet named Samuel to the home of a man named Jesse. Uh, There, uh, Samuel anointed Jesse's youngest son, a teenager, probably 15 years old, named David to be the next king over Israel. The only problem for David was it did not happen immediately. Saul found out about it. Saul spent the next several years trying to pursue David, trying to rid the world of David. David spent many years of his life on the run from Saul, trying to uh, outrun Saul and Saul's armies to protect his own life. Well, after the events that we'll read about today, David never had to fear for his life 
uh, being taken from King Saul ever again. So 1 Samuel chapter 31, and we will begin reading with verse 1. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them, and many fell dead on Mount Gilboa. Okay, just get the picture here. The Philistines, if you've read the Old Testament, you know they are the arch enemies of the Israelites. Um, Almost like France and Great Britain for centuries would fight against each other, and one would gain a little ground you know, after a victory, and then the other would gain a little ground after the victory. That was the story of the Philistines and the Israelites. They would have a battle, the Israelites would win, they would gain some territory, then the Philistines would win, and they would gain some territory, and it was a back and forth for years and years. Here the Philistines are engaging the Israelites in another battle, but this time it's deep within Israel's territory, and the Philistines are winning a decisive battle victory. All this happens around Mount Gilboa. Mount Gilboa is located um, about in the center of Israel, the Sea of Galilee to the north, the Dead Sea to the south. Gilboa is right in the center, just to the west of the Jordan River, running in between the Sea of Galilee uh, and the Dead Sea. Here they engage in this battle, and here's what happens. Verse 2, the Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. So here the Philistines are pursuing Saul and his army, and they managed to kill three of Saul's sons. Now we know very little about Abinadab and Malkishua, but we do know about Jonathan. Jonathan shows up in 1 Samuel chapter 20 as a friend of David. Saul's trying to kill David. Saul is um, running hard after David. He wants to know where David is so that he can rid the world of David. But, but Jonathan has a friendship with David. And Jonathan, at risk of, to his own life, his relationship with his father, Jonathan protects David. Jonathan helps David escape his father. And so at that point, Jonathan understood that his dad was wrong and David was right. But for some reason, later on, Jonathan, even though his father had abandoned the Lord, Jonathan stayed with his dad. Why? We don't know. The author doesn't tell us, but I can make a pretty good guess. In the castle, in his father's family, there was security. He had the comfort of the castle. He had the security of his father and the royal family that was there. And Jonathan, even though he knew that his father was wrong, decided to stay. But ultimately, staying there cost him his life. The Philistines pursue the army, and three of Saul's sons are killed. Here's what we read next, verse 3. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him... They wounded him critically. So at this point, the Philistines began to smell blood. This is more than just another victory. They have a chance to take out the king, and you take out the king, and that's a big win, a big victory for your side. And so they kill the sons, then they send in the archers who fire the arrows, and one or more of these arrows strikes Saul and wounds him critically. Or you could translate that, wounds him 
fatally. It's the end. The end is coming quickly for Saul. Verse 4. Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. Saul here turns to his bodyguard, his armor bearer, and says, I want you to go ahead and kill me. Why did he do that? Because he understood what happened in ancient warfare. During those times when an army defeated another army and they captured the king of the opposing army, what they would typically do is they would take that king, they would bind that king, they would gouge out both eyes of the king, and then they would march back to their hometown, to their home territory in a sort of parade with the army leading the parade and the behind that army would be this defeated king bound with ropes, his eyes gouged out behind some animal like an ox being led on the street. So the army would come through, people would line the streets and they would cheer. Their army had been victorious. They would cheer for the soldiers as they came in and then at the back of the parade was the trophy, the king of the nation they had defeated. Eyes gouged out. Look how sad he looks. Bound with ropes, being dragged along by some beast of burden. They would parade through the city. Typically there would be some area, maybe some platform in the city. They would end the parade there. This king would be taken. He would be placed on the platform. He might be tortured some more. They would say to the citizens who, is, who had gathered, look, here is their king. Look at him now. Then they would behead the king most often, take the head of that king. They would place it on a stake. And then like a trophy, they would parade that head on a stake throughout the region saying, look what we have done. Look how we have defeated our enemy. Saul understood what would happen if he was captured. So he turns to his bodyguard and says, kill me. If they capture me, I want it to be my dead body. I do not want to go through that. Take your sword and run it through me. This is how his bodyguard responds. But his armor bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. His bodyguard understood that the end was coming for Saul and that the end was coming for him. And he did not want his last act to be one of murder. He did not want Saul's blood on his hands. And even though it could have been justified as a mercy killing, he looked at the situation and said, I cannot carry out this command. There's no way that I can kill you and have as one of my last acts on this earth the murder of a king on my conscience. So he refuses, and because he refused, Saul then takes his own sword and he falls on it. Even though he was close to death already, he effectively here commits suicide, ending his life. Again, a life that started with a lot of promise. Here ends very sadly and very tragically. Next verse, verse 5. When the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men died together that same day. Some scholars here believe that this armor bearer was an individual known as Doeg the Edomite. If you've been here for this series, you may remember Doeg the Edomite. 
Doeg the Edomite was an advisor to King Saul, rarely left his side, and he was one evil guy. If they are right, and Doeg the Edomite was the armor bearer, do not feel sorry for this guy. He got what he deserved. Verse 7. When the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled. And the Philistines came and occupied them. So remember Mount Gilboa, right in the middle there, in between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, just to the left of the Jordan River and the Jordan River Valley, all these little towns and villages lying there along the river because it was a place where people could get water, where they could water their crops. They hear what has happened. The Philistines have come and they have attacked and they have killed King Saul. And they know what's coming next. They abandon their towns and they run. Even those living across the Jordan, on the valley on the other side, they abandon their towns and flee. You've seen the footage, undoubtedly, of the Ukrainians fleeing the cities where the Russians are coming in, going to places like Poland and Hungary, fleeing for their lives, only carrying with them what they could handle, leaving their homes behind, leaving their valuables behind. That's the picture here. They understood the Philistines were coming. They would kill them. They would torture them. So they leave everything behind, and they flee to save their lives. Verse 8, the next day when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his armor, and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. Again, if you know the story of Saul, you understand that this paragraph just drips with irony. Saul was chosen as king in part because he looked like a king. He was very brave, he was very strong, he was a courageous guy. But when he walked into a room, he exuded a sense of royalty. And one of the reasons was, according to the Bible, he stood a head taller than everyone else. When he went to a party and he walked into the room, everybody knew he was there. He looked like a leader. He looked like a king. And part of the reason was is that he was tall, a head taller than everyone else. And then at the end of his life, this very sad life, he lost that distinction of being a head taller than everyone else. It just reeks with irony here. This man who started off with all of this promise ends his life that sadly. Verse 9, verse 10. They put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shon. So the Philistines take the armor from Saul and they take it to their goddess, Ashtoreth, and they put the armor in the temple of their goddess, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you've read about the goddess Ashtoreth. She is often paired with the god Baal. Both of them were fertility gods. Um, they worshipped these fertility gods because they believed as they worshipped Baal and as they worshipped 
asterisk, if those, if the God and goddess were pleased with their worship, then that meant they would have good crops. That meant that their livestock would increase. That meant that they would have more children. Uh, essentially, this was worshiping their economy. This was how they survived. This was how they thrived. And we would say that it's somewhat equivalent to someone worshiping the almighty dollar, except the difference is when they had success, when they had economic prosperity, when they won a battle, that meant for them in their minds that their God, their gods were stronger than the gods or the God of the people they defeated. When they took the armor of Saul's body and they placed it in the temple of Ashtoreth, that was their way of saying, Ashtoreth beats Yahweh. They firmly believed that. And the Israelites, knowing this had happened, likely had that sense as well. And they would have thought, has God abandoned us? Has God forgotten us? Why did God let Ashtoreth win? Why did this happen to us? So they take the armor, they place it in the temple, and then they take the body of Saul, and we read later his sons as well, and they fasten his body to the wall that went around Mount Gilboa. About three years ago, before COVID hit, Katie and I had the chance to go to Israel uh, to tour Israel, and this was one of our stops. In fact, I took a picture not long after I got off the bus. This is a picture of Beth Shan and Mount Gilboa. In the foreground, you see Roman columns. That came after Saul. Roman columns came several centuries after Saul. During the time of Jesus, this was a bustling city called Scythopolis. Scythopolis had about 70,000 people. There was a lot of activity in that city. These are the ruins of Scythopolis in the foreground. In the background, you see Mount Gilboa. That was Beth Shan. There was a fortress, a small city on top of Mount Gilboa. That's where Saul and his sons were holed up in this fortress fighting against the Philistines when they lost. You can go there today, and around Mount Gilboa at the top are the ruins of an ancient wall that date back 3,000 years to the time of King Saul. Somewhere on that wall is where Saul's body, his headless body, was fastened so that everyone who walked past Mount Gilboa would look up and they would see there's King Saul, king of the Israelites, dead, headless, and fastened to the wall there. It was their trophy, their billboard, their way to announce, we have beaten the Israelites. Verse 11, when the people of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their valiant men marched through the night to Bethshon. They took down the body of Saul and his sons from the wall of Bethshon and went to Jabesh, where they burned them. Then they took their bones and buried them under a tamarisk tree at Jabesh, and they fasted seven days. To understand the significance of this, you have to go back to the beginning of Saul's reign. 
at the beginning of his reign, this city, this town called Jabesh-Gilead was attacked by the Ammonites. Last week or two weeks ago, we talked about the Ammonites. They were a ruthless people. They attacked this town called Jabesh-Gilead, and they threatened to gouge out the right eye of everyone in the town. Word of this got out. Saul heard what was about to happen, and like a modern-day Marvel superhero, he rallied forces, marched into Jabesh-Gilead. He whipped the Ammonites, drove them out of the town, and rescued the people of Jabesh-Gilead. And they never forgot it. Even when Saul drifted far away from the Lord, they still held Saul in high esteem because they remembered. Yes, Saul, maybe he's gone off track, but we remember when Saul saved our city, when he saved us from every person having the right owl gouged out, they remembered Saul fondly. So this happens, and men from Jabesh-Gilead, in the middle of the night, march through Philistine forces with Philistine soldiers crawling around. They bravely go through the Philistine forces up to Mount Gilboa. They rescue the bodies from the wall, take those bodies back to Jabesh Gilead, and then they burn the bodies. But understand, this was not cremation. The Israelites did not practice cremation. Normally, the way that they practiced a burial was to take a body, they would wrap the body, they would place it in a tomb, then they would come back a year later, and after the flesh had decomposed, they would get the bones from that body, and they would place the bones in a box called an ossuary, a stone box, and that would be the forever resting place of the individual. When those who wrapped the body of Jesus took his body and placed it in a tomb, they assumed they would come back a year later and gather his bones and place those bones in an ossuary. Jesus saved them from having to do that, by the way. Here, that's right. That's why we're here. That's why we celebrate. Here, because it was an emergency and because they did not have time to wait on the, the flesh to decay and wait for a year to come back and gather the bones, they were allowed in certain circumstances to burn the flesh and then collect the bones, which is exactly what they did. They collected the bones of Saul and his sons, and they buried those bones under a tamarisk tree. What's the significance of that? Absolutely nothing. Saul, the king of Israel, is buried in some random location under some tree. Not in the castle in Jerusalem, not in some other site where people could come and they could say there, there's where King Saul, the first king of Israel, is buried. No, he's buried in some random location. Again, this life that began with all this incredible promise ends on this sad, tragic note. What do we take from this? We read a story like this. What do we take from this? I think that what this does is it causes us to take stock of our own lives, to evaluate where we are and where we are headed, and to ask the really hard questions. I put four of those on your message map. If you've got that with you, here's some questions for all of us in this room to consider. First question is this. 
Have I lost my passion for the Lord? Ask yourself this hard question. If you are a follower of Christ, there was a time in your life that you were excited and you were passionate about following the Lord and every Bible study and every gathering and every worship service you wanted to be there. Do you still have that excitement? And that's what we see in Saul. You read the story of his life and you see that, man, he starts off and he is pursuing God 100%. And then he takes over the throne and the castle there's all the castle stuff to deal with and running a country and all these busy things just to occupy his time. And after a while, he becomes consumed with all of that. And he, he just loses focus. He loses his passion for the Lord. There are times in my life that I've thought, man, in high school and in college, I had all this excitement and all of this passion. And then one day, you know, you get a job and... You have kids and you get a mortgage and life just gets busy. And every day there's all these things that are clawing at us for our time. And one day you wake up and you go, I just don't have the passion that I once had. Why? It's not that I did anything intentional. It's just that life got in the way and I drifted away from the Lord. If you were here last week, you know that I was not uh, that that prior week, I had a sickness that, that was awful. Um, it, it's the sickest I've been in a while. Honestly, I was in the bed thinking I was going to die, and I was looking forward to it, <laughs> thinking I'll finally feel better. We had this stomach bug that ran through our house. It, it hit half of the house. I was in the half that it hit, unfortunately. Um, when you're sick like that, and when you've got kids that are sick like that, it's hard to be excited about Jesus. You know, when life goes sideways, sometimes all you want to do is survive. You're not thinking about worshiping the Lord and this Bible study and reading your Bible. These things that happen to us in life can just pull us away from the Lord. Listen to me. This is why you have to fight for your relationship with God. You will never drift into a strong relationship with the Lord. It only comes when you're intentional about it. When you say, I'm going to make it a point to be in worship. I'm going to make it a point to gather with other followers of Christ so I can be reminded of the gospel, so I can be reminded of the beautiful grace of God, so I can be reminded how we all fail time after time, but as a community of faith, we remember that God's mercies are new Every single day, and I gather in worship so I can make it this week so that my heart will not drift away from the Lord. I'm going to make it a point to get up in the morning and read my Bible so that I can be reminded of these truths so that when I go throughout my day and my phone is ringing and there's this alert and there's this notification and there's this person who wants my time and this thing's happening, I can be reminded of these eternal truths of God. I'm going to join a home team and I'm not going to just join a home team. I'm going to go to the meetings and I'm going to make sure that I'm there because I need to be challenged. I need to be held accountable. Otherwise, I will drift away and I will lose my passion for the Lord. First question is, do I still have that passion? And if not, what do I need to do to get it back? Second question is this, 
Am I making wise decisions? You read the story of Saul, and here's what happens. His heart drifts away from the Lord, and soon after that, his hands begin to drift as well. His heart moves away from God, and then he begins to make decisions that are not the decisions the Lord would have him make. Why? Because it's made out of a heart that has drifted away from God. I take uh, our four kids to school virtually every morning, and virtually every morning that I take them to school, I make three statements to them, three truths that I want them to get drilled into their minds. In fact, they've heard these three things so much that they have grown weary of me saying them. They will try to say them fast so we can move through, but I do not allow it. We're going to camp out on these three truths because I want you to get these and make sure that they are part of your DNA that you are living out. The first statement is this. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. What will you make of it? Today is the very first day of the rest of your life, and you have a choice whether or not to make today the first day of the rest of your life a great day and get the rest of your life started off on a great foot or to make it a miserable day. I want you to remember, today is the first day of the rest of your life. What will you do with with today? The second statement I make to him is this. No matter what happens today, I want you to remember that your daddy loves you. There is nothing you can do to change that. And there is nothing that can happen to you to change that. And even if this is an awful day and all your friends are mean to you and this day goes completely sideways, I want you to rest in the fact that your daddy loves you. And I want that, that truth I want that truth to encourage your heart. You remember, no matter, no matter what happens, your daddy loves you. And the third statement I make, and by this point, they're trying to rush it through so they can listen to the radio or do something else. They're trying to get, but we're not having it. We're going to camp out on these truths, right? The third statement that I make is the decisions that you make today determine the life you live tomorrow. I want you to understand that. The decisions you make today will determine the kind of life you live tomorrow. Therefore, I want you to make wise decisions. I do not want you to make decisions today that tomorrow you're looking back and you're regretting those decisions and you're wishing that you could turn back time and go back and undo that. Make wise decisions now. And boy, if I can get that infused into their DNA, I I think they will be so much better off. We need to ask that question. Am I making decisions today that are good, wise decisions that tomorrow I'll look back and say, okay, that was, I'm glad I did that. Or will I look back on the decisions that I made and go, oh, can't believe I did that. I wish I could undo that decision. Are, are we making the wise decisions? Number three, do I remember the source of my gifts and talents? If you ask my opinion in the story of Saul, this is where he went off track. Saul started off in such an incredible way, following the Lord with incredible bravery, these acts of courage. He goes into Jabesh-Gilead and rescues the whole town. And when he does this, the citizens of that town rightly began to praise Saul. Yay, Saul, you rescued us. You defeated the evil Ammonites. You are so wonderful, Saul. Thank you so much. Saul did a great thing. His problem was he began to believe his own press. And Saul began to think, yeah, I'm pretty awesome. I'm the best king around. Just went and defeated the Ammonites. 
I'm a head taller than everybody else. I walk into a room and everyone bows down and they say, hey, here comes the king. You know, I'm, I'm pretty awesome. I'm pretty amazing. And Saul forgot the source of every gift and every talent that he had. When we do that, we put ourselves in a dangerous place. If you're a great athlete, then more power to you. I am thrilled for you. I hope you have all kinds of success on the field. I hope you get a college scholarship and you're able to go and go to college for free. And I hope you have all kinds of success. And I hope that it's so successful that you get to play pro for the pros. I hope you sign with the Falcons or you sign with the Braves or you sign with the Hawks. Maybe not the Hawks, but you sign with someone. You know, I hope you have incredible success but every time you're interviewed, every time somebody asks, you say, I thank God that he's given me this success. This is not me. I did not choose my DNA. I did not choose how tall, how athletic I would be. I did not choose my parents. I did not choose where I was born. God has given me every opportunity. And if you're strutting on the athletic field, then you are forgetting who gave you every athletic ability that you have? If you're successful in business, I applaud that. I hope that you're successful this year and next year even more successful and that you're generous with everything that God has given to you, that you give back to the Lord, that you're generous to others. And whenever someone comes to you and says, how have you been so successful? You immediately say, the Lord has blessed me. This is not me. I did not choose uh, these gifts that God has given to me, but I have taken what God has given to me and I've done my best. And thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord, that you have blessed me in this way. I hope you use your, your business as a ministry, as a place where you can share the gospel and you never, ever forget the source of every gift that you have been given that, by the way, can be gone like that. Never forget that God is the one who gave you everything that you have. And number four, here's the last question. Do I think much about eternity? You get to the end of Saul's life, you read this tragic story, and it causes us to look at our own lives and to ask this question. Am I building a life that only matters for the next five years, 10 years, 20 years, maybe if you're young, 40 or 50 years? Am I building a life that will only matter for that period of time? Or am I centering my life in a way that it will matter for all of eternity? Am I putting all of my resources and all of my efforts, all of my time and all of my energy into things that one day when I'm gone, it won't matter at all? Or am I laying up for myself treasures in heaven? Our family loves to go to the beach. It's one of our favorite vacations. Um, I, I enjoy going to the beach. The only problem is I do not enjoy sitting still. I'll, I like to stay active. And so over the years, uh, one of my jobs has been to be the chief assistant sandcastle builder uh, for my kids as we've sat there and worked on sandcastles. And my philosophy is when you build a sandcastle on the beach, do it right. You know, don't, don't build a sandcastle halfway. If you're going to build a sandcastle, you need to fortify that thing. So you build the castle, put a wall around it, then a moat, then an outer wall, then another moat. Can never have enough moats to protect. 
from any kind of enemy coming, then maybe even another wall outside of that. My kids would laugh. We would build these just big sandcastles with lots of, lots of sand to protect the sandcastle. In, in fact, several years ago, we were down in Florida. We built one. I'm so proud of it. I took a picture. You see there's the inner castle and then a wall and then a moat. Then another wall, then another moat, you know, to protect when the water starts to come in. We spent a lot of time and a lot of energy on this particular sandcastle. Katie would sit there and she would just laugh. It's like, why are you doing all of this? You know that what's going to happen, it won't be here tomorrow. You know the sandcastle is going to be destroyed. Well, let me ask you. You seem like a smart bunch. What do you think happened to that sandcastle? Is it still there today? What do you think happened to it? Yeah, you think the waves got it. No, no, no. A four-year-old decided to play Godzilla, (laughs) and the sandcastle was Tokyo, and he destroyed it. Had he not, sandcastle still would have been gone. It still would have been destroyed by the waves coming in, and either slowly or all at once, washing all that we had created away. I wonder how many times God looks at the way that we're building our lives and he laughs. Not a funny ha-ha laugh, but a sad kind of laugh. Saying, why are you putting all that time, all that energy, and all those resources into things that one day will just be washed away? Now here's what I want you to do. I know most of the time you come here to church and you come to worship and you walk away and you go, oh, that was a nice sermon. You know, or you walk away and you go, yeah, that was kind of an okay sermon. You know, or you walk away and you say, hey, that was the best nap I've had all week. You know, I can't, can't wait to go back next week. No, most of the time you walk away and you just go on throughout your day. But here's what I want you to do. I want you this afternoon, throughout your day, throughout this week, I want you to stop every now and then. I want you to ask yourself this question. How am I building my life? Because there will come a day, like there will for all of us, that it's game over. And at that point, will you go out on a sad note like Saul? Or will you be able to step into eternity and hear from the Lord, well done, good and faithful servant?